Good morning and a warm welcome to Beckles Baptist Church uh, to this our online meeting. Uh, we'll be meeting uh, throughout August on YouTube before returning back to the building in September. And we're really glad that you found us on our YouTube channel. Uh, my name is Peter Skerritt, the assistant pastor here, and I'm going to be preaching for us today from Psalm 17. Last week, uh, we looked at one simple verse from Acts chapter 7 and the, the history of Israel. And the people of Israel were described as having turned back to slavery to Egypt in their hearts. We saw that actually one of the things that we desperately need to do as God's people is to fill our hearts with the good news of the gospel, with the knowledge of God. And we're going to start together by praying together. The words will come up on the screen by praying a prayer from the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Do pray with me as we come to meet around God's word. Glorious Father, God of our Lord Jesus Christ, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. We pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Now, our service today is going to be a more typical service, not one of our all-age services, as will be the case for the rest of August. However, uh, there's going to be a song for the children as well as a short children's slot right at the beginning. And we're going to start with a song. The song we sang a while back as we thought about what the church is. It reminds us of who we are as God's people. And children, you might enjoy singing along and dancing along. Adults, I hope the words encourage you uh, whether you choose to dance along or not. This is We Are The Church. Before the world began, God made a master plan to bring all things together under one head. That head is Jesus Christ, who died and rose to life, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. Once we were dead in sin. Safe through faith in Jesus alone. Part of his body now, united by his power, joined with his people all over the world. We are the church. Have you heard? He washed us clean.
Well, now it's time for our children's slot, and I'm going to pass uh, you over to Beth Perrett, our children's worker, who's prepared for the next few weeks a short series of slots on what Jesus said about himself. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I am a rabbit owner. I am a singer. A terrible chef. Oh no! When Jesus was on earth, he told people about himself, trying to explain a little bit more about who he was. Several times in the New Testament, Jesus says, I am something. Now, some of these I am statements seem a little bit weird, but we can learn something from them, a little bit more about who Jesus is. Over the next four Sundays, we're going to have a look at some of these together and hopefully we can learn a little bit more about Jesus and who he is. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Shepherds are mentioned quite a lot in the Bible, but what does a shepherd do? Let's see. Let's see if there are any shepherds around here. Oh no. It's Bill, the bad shepherd. A bad shepherd doesn't look after their sheep when they get lost. 98, 99, 100, huh? Where's my, my number, super 100? Oh, well, they'll be okay. A bad shepherd doesn't guide the sheep and tell them where they can get the best food and water. Hmm. Your sheep look thirsty. Do you know where they can get some water? Steady and come and all comfortable in the chair, thank you. A bad shepherd doesn't protect the sheep from wild animals. Roar! 
thankfully, Jesus isn't like Bill. Jesus is called the Good Shepherd. Jesus is like the shepherd that looks after his sheep. And we are called the sheep if we would call ourselves a Christian. Let's see what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd helps the sheep if they get lost. Jesus helps us to come back to him if we drift away. A good shepherd guides their sheep to the best food and water. Jesus leads us in our life and tells us the best way to live. A good shepherd protects the sheep. <coughs> Jesus protects us. Jesus is a good shepherd because he protected us from death. The Bible says the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. And that's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He laid down his life so that we can be friends with God and we can go to heaven. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And that means that we can trust Jesus to help us, to guide us and to protect us, just like a good shepherd does. Our reading today is from Psalm 17. Throughout the summer, the next few weeks, we're going to be working uh, through a few Psalms, Psalms 17 through to 21. And today we're in Psalm 17. But before Kathy Young comes to give us our reading, let's pray that as we listen to God's word, he would show us himself. Our Father, we thank you for these words uh, breathed out by your Spirit. Thank you uh, that they speak of real human situations uh, many years ago, and yet they speak to us. We pray where these uh, experiences and uh, circumstances that we find in the Psalms, where they, where they feel unfamiliar, we pray that you might instruct us. Father, where they feel very familiar and very painful, we pray that you might comfort us through these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over to Kathy. A prayer of David. Hear, O Lord, my righteous plea. Listen to my cry. Give ear to my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. May my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart and examine me at night, though you test me, you will find nothing. I have resolved that my mouth will not sin. As for the deeds of men... By the word of your lips, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent. My steps held to your paths, my feet have not slipped. I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Show the wonder of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a, a lion hungry for prey, like a great lion crouching in cover. Rise up, O Lord, come confront them. Bring them down. Rescue me from the wicked, 
by your sword. O Lord, by your hand, save me from such men, from men of this world whose reward is in this life. You still the hunger of those you cherish. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for their children. And I, in righteousness, I shall see your face when I awake. I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Amen. Do keep that copy of Psalm 17 open. It's not going to make much sense if you don't have it right in front of you. Now, at the beginning of July, that is the beginning of this month, in India, in the Latahar region, six Christian families were attacked by Hindu nationalists in their village. They were tied up and beaten and kicked. Now, when these families went to report this to the police station, the police sided with the nationalists. This is what one of the Christian families said. One member said, I thought the police are there to protect and serve justice. But the police spoke exactly what the religious fanatics had been telling us. It was disheartening that we had to come out of the police station with a heavy heart. The long and short of it is actually that that these six Christian families have been issued with an ultimatum. They are to reconvert to Hinduism or to leave their village, their homes, their history. Now, how would you feel if you were in a situation like that? What would you do? In fact, what could you do? Well, nothing, it seems. Well, that is the situation that David is in as he pens this psalm, as he writes this prayer of David. He is under pressure and needing to pray. David is praying under pressure. And as David is praying under pressure, actually what's happening in this psalm is that God is teaching us to pray under pressure. And as we come to the psalm, working through it, there are three pairs in this prayer, three pairs of things that will spur our prayers and fuel our prayers and instruct and shape them. Three pairs, a request and a reason each time. The first one is this, vindication and accusation in verses one through five. Vindication and accusation. David says, pray for vindication because of the accusations around you. The request for vindication is plain enough. If you were to look down at verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 17, David says, hear me, Lord. My plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. He's pleading for vindication. He's saying, show the world I'm innocent. And who cries and wants to be known as innocent except the person who has been named as guilty? David is is saying, God, clear my name because others are throwing mud at it. The accusation here that David is facing most likely comes from Saul and his cronies. If you know the story in 1 Samuel King Saul basically accuses David of leading a coup, a rebellion, wanting to dethrone Saul, wanting to take his crown and his kingdom and replace him. 
which is simply not true. But that's the accusation. And so what happens? Well, David becomes at the top of Israel's most wanted list. The, the manhunt is on. Have you seen this man, David, wanted? And David says, well, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Verses 3 to 5, he carries on saying, God, though, though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you'll find that I've planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people try to bribe me, I've kept myself from the way of the wicked. The way of the violent, through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. He's saying, I'm innocent. I'm innocent in my, in my thought. Verse 3, you probe my heart, what I've planned. I'm innocent in my thought. I'm innocent in my words. Verse 3, again, my mouth has not transgressed. I'm innocent in my deeds, what I've done. Though people try to bribe me, I've kept myself from the way of the wicked. I'm innocent in thought, word, and deed. Now, David is not claiming here to be sinless. But in this instance, he is claiming to be blameless. It reminds me of a story that my dad told uh, and tells regularly of the, of the time when he nearly got caned. Falsely accused of cheating in a test. Uh, apparently someone had stolen the test paper. The whole class did pretty well. Uh, my dad was supposedly to blame. Well, of course, I'm sure that my dad was not a perfect schoolboy. I'm sure that he uh, did some things wrong. But in this case, he was blameless. And was he right to protest his innocence and say, well, I haven't done anything in this case? Well, yeah, he was. And fortunately for him, uh, whilst the accusation was made, vindication did eventually happen. Uh, what happened had eventually, uh, well, eventually came out, and the cane, luckily for my dad, stayed in the box. You see, he was not sinless, but he was blameless in this particular instance. And that is the situation that, that David is finding, that there's a false accusation made against him. And so he needs to pray desperately for, for vindication, that people would see that he is innocent in this matter. Now, David was not the first of God's people to face false accusation, and neither would he be the last. Back in Genesis, the, there is Joseph accused of rape in Egypt and condemned to a dark, dank cell forever, it seems. There's Moses, who is uh, accused by the people of Israel of leading them out to die in the deserts of Egypt, which, of course, was not his intention. There's Job full of suffering. People say, well, you must have done something wrong for your life to go so wrong. Fast forward, and you have the Lord Jesus himself who is falsely accused. Just rereading this week the accounts of John's Gospel, read chapters 18 through to 19, and I was honestly struggling to find what exactly they were accusing him of. They talked all the way about what, what he was doing was bad, but they never said what exactly he'd done, because they couldn't find real charges. And when Pilate finally pushes uh, Jesus' accusers for a charge for something he's done wrong, well, they struggle, and the best they can find is that he, he claimed to be a king. And in Luke chapter 23, we're told that he apparently opposed paying taxes, which is a blatant lie, a false accusation. 
It's true for Jesus. And then that stretches on into the early church. We've been reading through Acts in our Bible reading plan as a church. Well, think about Stephen, the first martyr, and the apostles, Paul, Barnabas, Silas. They were all accused of things that they simply didn't do and weren't aiming for. False accusation is nothing new. And it continues today, which makes this a prayer for you and me today. Now, on a serious scale, this happens in the persecuted church worldwide. And we're going to think about that in just a moment. But we mustn't miss that it does happen on on a smaller scale in our lives. Certainly smaller, but still significant. Uh, Where where things we say or do, they they get misconstrued or, or misunderstood. Or people make up things that we said or did. Or they manipulate what we did to make it sound worse than it was. I wonder if you've experienced anything like that. A a false accusation, just injustice. Maybe in the office, your your boss put simply doesn't like you. And no, they don't say it. They show it by the things they make you do and the things they say about you. Maybe at home with a spouse, Christian or not, you're wrongly accused of things that you simply haven't done uh, and you're put in in the doghouse for things that aren't true. Well, all of those and more are situations where you're faced with accusation and you must pray for vindication. No, you must pray. Because when we're faced with false accusation, it is easy to vent our frustrations. Maybe at God, maybe at other people. So you'll never believe what they just said. You'll never believe what they've accused me of. I haven't done that. It's so unfair. But venting doesn't really achieve very much. Venting achieves nothing, but praying will achieve vindication. That's what this psalm's about. Perhaps not now, but maybe. I don't know if you followed a a few years ago the the story of Asiya Bibi, uh, a Pakistani mother, accused and condemned to hanging under the uh, Pakistani blasphemy laws. But after an appeal and an international outcry, acquitted, wonderfully so. That is an answer to prayer for vindication. She was shown to be innocent of the crimes that she was accused of. So, yeah, pray for vindication. Perhaps you might get it now. But if not now, definitely when Jesus comes again. When he comes back, every single unjust, false accusation will be overturned, overthrown, overruled. And what a wonderfully just Relieving day that will be. When faced with false accusation, we're to pray for vindication. That's the first pair, vindication and accusation. The second pair is this, protection and persecution. Protection and persecution, verses 6 through 12. David prays for protection because of the persecution around him. And so should we. As he prays in verses 6 through 8, To God, he says, I call on you, turn your ear to me, hear my prayer, show me the wonders of your love, keep me, hide me. He's saying, protect me, protect me. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. It's a prayer for protection. Last Christmas, 
our two children received a bundle of Nerf guns. I don't know if you know what they are, basically plastic toy guns, which uh, when loaded shoot little uh, foam pellets or bullets. Uh, now, there was one rule in our house with these guns. Don't point at people. They weren't to shoot people. Because whilst a little foam bullet, if it hits you in the chest, it's no problem. It might hurt a little bit, but not very much. If that same foam bullet were to hit your eye, it could do some serious damage. In fact, there's a reason why at Jam, when we play with Nerf guns occasionally in our midweek group, they have to wear goggles, safety goggles, because the eye is so precious and fragile that even a tiny foam bullet shot from a plastic toy gun can do severe damage. So in verse 8, when David says, keep me as the apple of your eye, it literally translates, keep me as the, the little man of the eye, the, the pupil of the eye. Another uh, translation of the Bible puts it like this, guard me as if I were your own eye. Eyes are fragile. Eyes are precious. And so we rightly protect them. And David is saying, keep me as safe as you would keep an eye, a precious pupil, fragile. David said, protect me. But from what? Protect me from what? From persecution. Verse 9 carries on. He says, keep me, hide me from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. David is saying, protect me from my enemies who who are surrounding me. They're described like a pack of uh, prowling, hungry, ravenous, dangerous lions who've tracked him down and now they're surrounding him. And they've trapped him, and all they've got to do left is now destroy him. Verse 12. They are like a lion, hungry for prey, like a fierce lion, crouching in cover. We can imagine this kind of prayer for for Joseph. As Joseph sits in a dark cell in Egypt, accused of things he didn't do, waiting for death at some point. We can imagine Jesus himself praying this kind of prayer in Gethsemane, knowing that at some point Judas would arrive with a full cohort of centurions and soldiers with spears and lanterns to drag him off to his death. Persecution needs protection. And so we must pray for it, as David does. Physical, spiritual shielding. The kind of protection, physical protection, so that we are here as long as God intends us to be here. And spiritual protection to ensure that we are eventually there. Physical and spiritual protection. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when we read through the Psalms, I find it that it feels a bit like you're kind of walking through a foreign land. It feels alien and strange that the customs, the experiences, the expressions and and ambitions that people seem to utter in these psalms sometimes feel a bit strange, foreign, and certainly not that familiar. So when when people are talking about false accusations and persecution and, and playing for vindication and protection, for us, especially in the Western world, it feels just a little bit irrelevant or just far-flung for us. And that should raise a couple of questions for us. If it feels foreign, firstly, why don't we face this kind of pressure? 
when we're talking about accusations and vindications, why don't we face that? Because it could be, it's worth thinking about, it, it could be that we don't face the same pressure that these believers do because we're not living as believers should do. That may well be the case. Maybe we've ducked our head beneath the parapet too many times. That people don't even know that we're, we're Christians. So the idea of accusations and persecutions would, would never happen. That's the first question. Why, why don't we face this kind of pressure? And that's one of the benefits of reading the Psalms. Whether they feel uh, irrelevant or not, the point is they are acclimatizing us to life in the kingdom as we, as we see what it looks like for people past and present to walk with God himself in his kingdom. But the second question we should be asking is, well, if we're not feeling this right now, who, who does feel this kind of pressure? And the answer is obvious. It is our church family, maybe in Beckles, but I'm thinking wider. Our church family, our brothers and sisters, who we have a responsibility to in the wider world, the persecuted church across this, this world. I'll give you one example, India. We heard one story from India right at the beginning. Here's another one. In April of this year, April 2020, eight Christians in India's Uttar Pradesh state were falsely accused of violating a coronavirus lockdown law. The accusation was made by local papers and by local police that these eight believers were meeting in a worship service when actual, in actual fact they were meeting uh, gathering together and preparing aid packages of food and supplies for people in their community who needed it. They had the express permission of the head of their village. But the police didn't care much for that. They'd heard rumours uh, that foreign aid money was being used to forcibly convert people to Hinduism, which wasn't true. And so they stormed this church, arrested these people, eight of them, including the pastor, they beat them, they took them to prison in custody. And then they asked the questions. And actually, they were accusing the people they'd captured, uh, imprisoned, of these very same things with no real evidence. Accusation and persecution. It happens in the, in the local papers and with the local police of all people. This for some, is the daily experience of life in the kingdom, of life where they live, of life following Jesus. So how desperately, whilst we might not feel it, we should be praying for, for vindication and protection for these, our brothers and sisters, around the world. We should be praying that the Lord will stand at their side, uphold them, that he might rise up and defend them, that he might keep them as the apple of his eye, protect them like a fragile, precious pupil, that he might shelter them and shield them in his wings, spiritually and physically. We should be praying for protection from persecution. Protection and persecution, that's the second pair and third pair to fuel our prayers. Confrontation and expectation. Confrontation and expectation in verses 13 through 15. Verse 13 is very plainly a prayer for confrontation. Verse 13, rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down. With your sword, rescue me from the wicked. It's a prayer for God to, 
to get his hands dirty, to deliver his people, to rise up and put down his enemies, to bring them to their knees by the sword, by his bare hands. It's a prayer for judgment and confrontation. Now, this is what people pray for when faced with accusation and persecution. This is what we're praying for when we pray for protection and for vindication. We're praying for confrontation. And we all love the confrontation of evil. The the newspapers and the media, they're full of stories of people standing up and confronting evils in our society. Racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. Keir Starmer is an example of uh, the shadow um, minister, uh, the Labour leader, who removed Rebecca Long-Bailey from her post uh, in the shadow cabinet for sharing an anti-Semitic video. And he was widely praised for it because we love it when people stand up against evil and confront it face to face. Accusation and persecution can only be stopped by confrontation. Vindication and protection can only be achieved by confrontation. But we can only pray for the confrontation of the wicked if we have an expectation of rescue for ourselves. As David says in verse 15, as for me, I'm not talking about them, I know their fate, but as for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. As for me, not like the wicked, He's confident and expectant that he will see God, that he he will be safe and secure. When God comes to confront wickedness, he'll be safe. He'll see God face to face and he'll be satisfied with God himself. He can only pray for God to confront because he's expecting that he'll be safe. And such an expectation of safety and security, it can only be found and had in and through the Lord Jesus, only there. You see, the the problem is when we call God to confront sin, what we're doing is actually calling God to confront us because we're all guilty of it. It reminds me of a news story I heard a while back. It was um, very amusing because this man uh, who rang up the police uh, to call them to, to take action. He wanted them to confront a crime that had just happened to him. And he rang up saying to the police, my friend has stolen my class A drugs, cocaine. What happened? In calling judgment on the person who stole his drugs, he actually ended up calling judgment on himself from the police. In calling for the the authorities to confront evil, he condemned himself. We can only call God to confront sin if we're right with him right now. So if you've stood against him your whole life, well, be sure that he will confront you and bring you to your knees for your cosmic treason against the king of the universe. But if you've taken shelter with him, if you've hidden yourself in him, if you've thrown yourself on him, be sure Be confident that you will be sheltered. As he comes to confront the wicked, he will protect you. 
And maybe you've not done that. Maybe you have not come to him. Well, come while you can. Throw yourself on him because you can be sure that he will come. And when he comes, he will confront wickedness and the enemies of his people. So make sure you are in him. Now, perhaps you're thinking Christian or not. Well, fine. But maybe David's just experiencing some wishful thinking here. Things are bad and he's just praying that they might get better. But how do we know things will get better? How do we know that this vindication and protection and confrontation will actually come? We've actually seen this story happen once before. We've seen it played out. We've seen a man, the Lord Jesus, falsely accused and fiercely persecuted, cursed and mocked on a cross. But we have also seen this same man vindicated for all to see, confronting sin, death and Satan. As he walked out of the grave, the tomb, three days later, how do we know the vindication, protection, and confrontation are possible, in fact, certain for God's people? Because it's happened once before. It happened once to the Lord Jesus, and it will happen to us. And so we can pray under pressure confidently. When we're faced with accusation, we can pray for vindication. When we're faced with persecution, we can pray for protection. And when we're faced and looking forward to the future, we can face confrontation with God with actual real expectation. David ends, verse 15, As for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face. And when I awake, there's a a hint of the resurrection there. When I awake, I shall be satisfied, seeing your likeness, seeing your form, seeing God face to face. We can pray under pressure with utter confidence that he will answer. We're going to pray now. Um, We're going to take time to pray, firstly, for Christians um, in India, and then we're going to pray uh, for some events coming up in the week ahead, uh, thinking more locally in Suffolk. So let's pray together. Father, we want to pray specifically now for Christians in India. We thank you so much for the way that the the gospel has gone to that nation, that churches have grown there. We thank you that you have uh, sustained your people despite real pressure as a minority uh, amongst the Hindus and Muslims. We pray that you would sustain them. Father, for those individuals and those families that we heard of earlier, Would you please vindicate them? Would any false accusations not stand? Would they be removed and fall down in court? We pray that the authorities, the police, would give them justice. But if that won't happen then, Father, we pray that you'll help them to look forward to the justice that is to come, when their name will be cleared and they'll be shown to have done the right thing. Father, we pray that you'd protect them as well, spiritually and physically. Protect them from harm, particularly from violent attacks. But protect their faith as well. Help them not to compromise. Help them not to stay silent and fearful. But to serve Jesus, to serve others, to love God and love other people, their neighbours, and even love their enemies. And we pray that you give them a real expectation of the day when Jesus will come back. Help them to be assured and confident that when he comes back, 
It will be a great day for them, as great for them as it will be awful for those who have hurt them and opposed them. Help them to long for that day and to be really sure in the Lord Jesus there. Thinking closer to home as well, Father, we pray for a couple of uh, summer camps happening in different forms in the next week uh, as part of the Association of Grace Baptists in East Anglia. We pray for uh, camps happening in Hunstanton and uh, Weathering Set. We pray uh, for those camps, especially Weathering Set, where they are aiming to actually have three small day camps uh, with social distancing uh, measures and and the like. We pray um, that you keep people safe. We pray that they'd be able to have fun despite the restrictions placed on them. And for uh, the online um, series and sessions going out on YouTube uh, for both of the camps, we pray that that would be a real encouragement that despite not being able to meet uh, in person and do all that they would normally do, it would uh, encourage Christian campers, children, to keep going following Jesus at school. We pray that it might uh, maybe even reach people that wouldn't have been able to come to the camp itself. And we ask that you might raise up a a group of uh, disciples, young teenagers who love Jesus and want to speak for him in this region in particular. And we ask that uh, for Jesus' glory, his name to be known, and for people to be saved in India especially and Suffolk. Amen. We've just mentioned uh, in Psalm 17 that actually God's people are often under pressure. Their beliefs are tested and life is difficult. And our next song that we're going to sing reminds us actually that we we live by faith. This is the chorus. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's rewards, and we'll walk by faith and not by sight. It is only actually as we see the story of the Lord Jesus who was ultimately vindicated despite what he went through that we will be convinced and able to do exactly the same. So we're going to play this song. Do feel free to just listen or to sing along in your homes.
Before we formally finish uh, this online service, let me just draw to your attention a few things happening uh, today and in the week ahead. Uh, as a reminder to the church family, uh, today at 6.30 this evening, we have a prayer meeting online, uh, which will be led by Doug Amer, one of our elders, and we'll be praying for uh, Horan Baptist Church and Iran as part of our focus on wanting to encourage and pray for the persecuted church. That's 6.30. Uh, please um, check your emails for a link to that Zoom uh, meeting. Just something to flag up in the two weeks coming up. Uh, as part of our daily Bible reading plan, uh, we've been working through the Old Testament as a church, uh, drawing to the end of the book of Judges. In the next two weeks, we're going to have two quick books in, in succession, working through the book of Ruth, and then starting in 1 and 2 Samuel. And we've produced as a church uh, two short videos to help you think of what you should be looking for. We're going to watch quickly the introduction to the book of Ruth before some more notices. Ruth is a book of providence. That is, a book full of God's ever-present hand, with all things, at all times, in all places, even down to the tiniest detail. And whilst God is never said to move anything in this book, he is seen to be moving everything in this beautiful story. Admittedly, at the beginning, God's ever-present hand doesn't seem especially present. Famine has taken the whole of Naomi's family out of the land of Israel. And now death has taken away the whole of Naomi's family. Her husband and her two sons have died within the space of 10 years. However, God's providence, his ever-present hand, is always at work, always looking to bless his people, both as individuals and as a nation. Firstly, the Lord provides Ruth for Naomi. Although Naomi is, uh, says to stay at home, Ruth is having none of it. She's determined to stick with Naomi uh, to the end. And so they arrive back at Bethlehem together. And here and throughout, Ruth shows her noble character. She's loyal, generous, kind, godly. So keep your eyes open in this book for extraordinary godliness in the lives of God's ordinary people. And as they imitate him, their gods, these people in the book should inspire and instruct us. Secondly, the Lord provides Boaz for Ruth and Naomi. As Ruth and Naomi start their quest for food and survival in Bethlehem, it just so happens that it's harvest time. And it just so happens that Ruth ends up working in Boaz's field. And it just so happens that Boaz is related to Ruth through Naomi to be their kinsman redeemer. Now Ruth finds favor in the eyes of Boaz, receiving kindness, provision, and protection. And here, the kindness of Boaz to Ruth can't help but lead us to the kindness of Jesus for sinners. Jesus is, amongst many things, related to us by taking on our humanity, kind to us. He loves us. He protects us. He provides for us. He buys us. He owns us. He unites himself to us. Boaz is a stunning shadow of our stunning Savior. Or thirdly, 
The Lord provides a future for his people. Now, the story of Ruth seems to start just with three individuals, but God's ever-present hand is working out a much, much bigger story. Now, while the first verse locates us in the time of the judges, the last verse of Ruth looks forward to and leads us to the time of the kings. From the line of Ruth and Boaz would come King David himself. That's providence. That's God's ever-present hand. Ordinary circumstances resulting in extraordinary outcomes and a bright future for his people. Now, the structure of the book tells the story clearly enough as we work through, firstly, the background story in Moab, chapter 1, the provision in the fields in chapter 2, an encounter at the threshing floor in chapter 3, and then redemption at the city gate in chapter 4. But the story has an amazing symmetry. A very ordinary set of interactions in chapters 2 and 3 between Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz are actually the way that God moves us from chapter 1 to chapter 4, moving us from death and mourning and bitterness to the birth, rejoicing, and hope of chapter 4. And in this, we have providence, God's ever-present hand, in the story of Ruth, a book of providence. I hope that's given you more of a feel for what to look out for in the book of Ruth as you read it for just three days. Uh, Then on Thursday, we have our prayer meeting on Zoom again at 7.30. We will be uh, led by Malcolm Parsons as he leads us to pray for Caring for Life, one of our mission partners uh, that we have as a church. And then next Sunday, we'll be meeting again online at 10.30 on YouTube. Roger Prime will be speaking from Psalm 18. As today, that won't be a typical all-age family service, but there will be at the beginning uh, something for the children to keep them involved, as well as an activity sheet. And then later that day, 6.30, Paul Spill is going to be leading us uh, in a Zoom prayer meeting as we pray specifically for Shepherd Drive a church uh, down in Ipswich that we have connections with. That's close. Uh, before we finish, I'm really glad that you were able to join us. Uh, let me read some words from that psalm to close. As for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Our Father, we Thank you for that hope that we have the certain expectation of resurrection because Jesus rose from the dead, of safety because Jesus died for us, and of satisfaction because we will be with our Lord. Would those be at the forefront of our mind, whatever we face in the week ahead, for us, for our brothers and sisters uh, in the local area and around the world. Help us to long for that day of satisfaction with Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.